this morning we're continuing our journey through Genesis. And it is great to see so many of our students back. Uh, there's a couple of things we ask you to do at Alberta Baptist Church. Number one is come. That's, that's pretty simple. Number two is bring your Bible. And number three, ask somebody to come with you. Okay? That's not hard. Can you remember that? And uh, that's what we would like for you to do this fall, especially to our students. But uh, we've been going through the book of Genesis, a journey through Genesis. We're in the 17th chapter this morning. Let me just give you a heads up. The next four weeks, we're going to take a little break. Uh, we at Alberta Baptist Church want everybody, the purpose of our church is for people to know God. To know God, to find community, to get plugged in with each other, and then to live on mission. Very simple, to live on mission. But for the next four weeks, we're going to take those three thoughts and break them down. Pastor Colby will be kind of casting the vision next Sunday about what these things mean to us generally. Then I will come and speak specifically about knowing God. What does it mean to know God? And then Brother Jared's going to come and Brother Kyle are going to come and talk about living, finding community and living on mission. So we're excited about casting a vision before you in the next few weeks. And uh, I'm excited about our church and what the Lord's doing here. So I hope that you'll make a special effort to be with us for the next couple of weeks. We're in the 17th chapter of Genesis this morning. And I've entitled the message, A Friend of God. A Friend of God. In my life, I've had a few significant moments. Those kind of moments that you remember. I remember May the 24th, 1980, before God and way too many witnesses, I got married at a Whitesburg Baptist Church in Huntsville. That was a significant moment. I remember the, the moment I came to Christ. But on March the 25th, 1980, I was in Evergreen, Alabama, at the Holiday Inn in Evergreen, Alabama. There was a banquet that night, and Coach Bryant was speaking. I was charged with the task of introducing Coach Bryant at this banquet. And I'll never forget, that was quite a challenge, to introduce Coach Bryant. This was 1980, uh, roughly a year and a half before he died, maybe two years before he died in 82, uh, January of 83. But anyway, I introduced Coach Bryant. And as he got to the podium, the first thing Coach Bryant said that night, and I'll never forget, he said, I love Keith Pugh. And he said, I love all my players. And I wish I'd told him that more often. But the fact that Coach Bryant said, I love Keith Pugh, was a significant moment in my life. You know, if one of the coaches had said to me, you know, Keith, Coach Bryant thinks a lot of you. That would have been special. If Miss Bryant, and we used to hang with her, Teresa did a Bible study in their house for players' wives, and so we were pretty tight with Miss Bryant. If Miss Bryant had said, Keith, Paul, that's what she called him, Paul really loves you. That would have been special. But to hear Coach Bryant say the words, I love Keith Pugh, had a tremendous impact on my life. Just because of who he was, his stature in college football. My opinion, greatest coach ever, but you know that's debatable. But for him to say that, okay, how would you feel if God, the God of the universe, said, John Matthews is my friend. Kobe Mouche is my friend. Wayne Brooks is my friend. You know, it'd be great for somebody else to say that about you. Think about it. You know, Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 said this, 
Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? Jehoshaphat said that Abraham was God's friend. Now, wherever Abraham was at that time, I'm sure that was special to him. James in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 23 says, And Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Jehoshaphat said it, James said it, and I'm sure that meant a lot to Abraham. But look at Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. God speaks. God Himself speaks and says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. Wow. To me, that's one of the most moving verses of all of Scripture. I love in, in Exodus 30 when Moses talked about, he's writing about himself, but he said he used to meet with God in the tent of meeting and God spoke to him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. But to be a friend of God, to be called a friend of God, hey, that's, that's, that's the top right there, church. That is very special. Abraham, my friend, that's the greatest tribute a man could ever receive. What was so special about Abraham? Let's look at chapter 17. Now when Abram, he's still Abram. We hadn't called him Abraham yet. We will in a minute. But when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. The word there is El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, which is a proper response to the appearance of God. And God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude of nations. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Let's pray. Father, We thank you that you are El Shaddai, God Almighty. Thank you that as you have spoken your word to Abraham, that your purposes will be accomplished. Your promises will be kept. God, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, that we can receive the promises given to Abraham, that we can be a part of your people, the family of God, to be called by your name, And indeed, to be called a friend of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. God speaks to Abram. And the first thing we see is that Abram recognizes the greatness of God. Now, God has revealed himself in Genesis chapter 1 as Elohim, the God who creates. And he spoke the world into existence. Then God is revealed to Noah and to Abram earlier as Yahweh, the God who keeps covenants, the God of the covenants. 
Now, God appears to Abram as El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who controls, God who creates, the God of the covenants, the God who controls, if you like to alliterate. I, I get caught up in that sometimes, but it's easy for me to remember that. But he is a God who is in control. And so when God speaks to Abram, Abram recognizes the greatness of God, the greatness of God. Let me tell you this morning, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A.W. Tozer said that. What comes into my mind, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, let me, let's just ponder that for just a second. El Shaddai, the God in control. Abram recognized that. And he fell on his face before God Almighty because he recognized the greatness of God. Now, think about our lives today. What we think about God, what, what does your God look like? I mean, we all have a different perception of God. Do we have a truly biblical perception of who God is? When we do, it changes our life. God speaks to Abram and reveals himself as El Shaddai. Great thoughts of God lead to great lives for God. Little thoughts of God lead to little lives for God. Now think about that again for just a second. Great thoughts of God. What does my God look like? Does my God look like El Shaddai, the God who controls? What is my perception, my constant reality, my constant thinking about God? Do I see God as someone that I come to on my terms? Do I see God as kind of this grandfatherly figure in heaven? Uh, do I see God as a policeman in the sky? You know, he has a big billy club and have fun. He goes, bam, told you not to do that, didn't I? You know, one guy said, I don't want to be a Christian. It means when I grow up, I have to marry a girl that doesn't even kiss and then go to Africa as a missionary and die of mosquito bites. You know, think that God is a killjoy, a cosmic killjoy. Great thoughts of God lead to great lives for God. What happens when I have little thoughts of God? How does this impact my life? I could go on for a long time, but I think basically in my life when it comes to sin, when I sin, what am I thinking about God? Probably rarely do I even consider my holy God. Rarely do I even think about the nature of God when I willfully disobey when I willfully say things or do things that I know are not a part of what God would have me to do, that I am a temple of the living God. Don't you know, Paul says the church at current, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you're the temple of God and the temple of God is holy. And he says, and that is what you are. But the God of the universe lives in me. What's my concept of God? When I sin, maybe I just have a brain cramp or something. We often do that, don't we? How about when I, when I contemplate the greatness of God? John Piper said several years ago, he preached from Isaiah 6 on the greatness of God. In the staff meeting, he was kind of ridiculed. He said, you know, staff just kind of said, you know, you didn't have much application. 
You didn't bring it down. There are people hurting in our congregation. And all you did, pastor, was talk about the greatness of God. God is exalted. God is high. And, you know, we need to, people need to know that God can come and minister to us on our level. And so John Piper said, you know, not to be discouraged, he found out a couple weeks later that when he preached from Isaiah 6 about the greatness of God, that there was a couple in that service that day And they had just discovered that their young child was being sexually molested by a close relative. And they came to church looking for comfort. They came to church looking for answers. And John Piper preached about the greatness of God. When he visited with the family, the husband said, John, these have been the hardest months of our lives. Do you know what's gotten me through? The vision of the greatness of God's holiness that you gave me the first week we came, it has been the rock we could stand on. Church, that's the greatness of God. He is the rock that we can stand on. God is our rock. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty. We can stand on Him. That means if you're having struggles in our life, in your life, struggles in your family, Struggles in your business, struggles in your health, your finances. The God who is almighty is the one we turn to. He is the one who is able. He is God almighty, El Shaddai, and he has all the power and all the resources that we need to face. You know, James 4, 6, I love that it says, but God gives a greater grace. James doesn't even tell us greater than what. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Whatever comes into your life, God's grace is greater. What is grace? It's a dynamic force given to us by God to live life God's way. We're saved by grace. We stand by grace. We live by grace. And God is the God of all grace because he's the God of all power. Paul said, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Great thoughts of God lead to great lives for God. Little thoughts of God lead to little lives for God. Notice here, when God comes to Abram, (laughs) it's a pretty one-sided conversation. Men, sometimes we can relate to this if you're married. But God comes to Abram and he says, walk before me. I will multiply you exceedingly. My covenant is with you. You will be the father of multitude of nations. By the way, Abram, I'm changing your name. You're no longer exalted father. You will now be called father of a multitude. He didn't even ask permission to do this. Can I change your name? He didn't even ask. But he goes, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. Now, does this sound like a bargaining arrangement? Abram's just laying on his face and God's talking to him. A sovereign God speaks. And when God speaks, Abram obeys. When God speaks to us, the first thing we need to recognize is who's speaking to us. This is not another philosopher. This is not Dr. Phil. This is not something we hear. This is the God of the universe. El Shaddai, God Almighty. God is going to bring about these promises. But what if? What if Abram stumbles? 
What if he repeats his same deal with Sarah? This is my sister. He told it to the Egyptians. He's going to do it again in chapter 20. What if he tells another lie? What if his grandson Jacob is a deceiver and lies to his brother and deceives his brother? What if, what if Abraham has a descendant one day who ascends to the role of king and he's sitting on the throne and he becomes an adulterer and a murderer? Can God still fulfill his promises? His promises? What, if, what if God sends his own prophets to the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, and they refuse to listen to the prophets? They kill the prophets. Can God still accomplish his promises? What if... God sends his own son to his own people and they despise and reject him and nail him to a cross. Surely, surely God can't fulfill his promises. God does. God's going to bring about his promises. The Apostle Paul says it like this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Abram, Abraham, you will be the father of a multitude of nations. I'm telling you that. El Shaddai has spoken. Write it in the book. And he says, verse 8, look at that. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. What if the Jewish people are scattered all across the world? What if, what if they're almost persecuted to extinction? Do you think they could ever come back and have a land of their own? 1948. The Jews came back. God establishes an everlasting covenant with Abraham because he is God Almighty. Abraham's response, he falls on his face. And the next thing we see in verse 3, he walks by faith and obedience. Excuse me, verse 1. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. It's interesting here because walk before me is the command. Be blameless is the result. Walk before me, before God, and be blameless. This is what happens when we recognize the greatness of God and we walk before Him. You know, it's interesting, Enoch walked with God. And some have tried to differentiate, well, it's better to walk with God than before God. Hey, if you're with God, you, you know, it's hard to complain. <laughs> to walk before God, I think, is even a greater call to, to know that His eyes are upon you. Just like a father or a mother with a child, always on that child, watching, walking before God. Having a walk with God. It's interesting that What God is calling Abram to is a different lifestyle. We'll see that in just a minute. A lifestyle of obedience here to walk blamelessly. And then we'll see a little later as he talks about the rite of circumcision. There's another commitment that Abram will make before God. But Abram, in chapter 15, verse 6, was justified before God. Remember that? Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now God says, my covenant is with you. Walk before me and be blameless. This is Abram's call to a separated life. We call that sanctification. What do we see in the life of Abram? Chapter 15, he's justified. Chapter 17, he is sanctified. 
later on, he's glorified as he becomes the father of many nations. Go back to chapter 12. He's called, he's justified, he's sanctified, and he's glorified. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That's what God has done for us. But Abraham is not saved or justified by his walk before God. He is justified by his faith. As a result of his faith, he walks before God. And that's important for us to understand. Justification by faith. This is what we call the sanctification. He is set apart. He walks before God. Is God telling Abram to be perfect? Again, we see in chapter 20 that he's far from that. Blameless. This is how this is said of Noah, the set of Job. Men who have a wholeheartedness or who have an integrity, who walk before God honestly and openly. The, the, thing, the one that comes to my mind is King David. I mean, he loved God. You have to admire his zeal. Everything David did, he did wide open. <laughs> when he sinned, he sinned wide open. But God said, this is a man after my own heart. This is what it means to walk before God. Someone who loves God, has an intensity for God, a desire for God, a wholeheartedness, a wholeheartedness for God. Uh, Pastor Colby, I just, I love his zeal for God. I mean, you're around him two minutes and you know he loves the Lord. There's no question about that. And that's what God was commanding Abram to do. Walk before me and be blameless, be wholehearted. He made mistakes. But yet he had a heart that was whole toward the Lord. So Abram was called to walk in obedience. He responded in faith in his walk. The next thing he had to deal with was his name. God changes his name. Verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Exalted Father, but your name shall be Abraham. Can you imagine this? For 86 years, Abram. When he met a stranger, what's your name? My name's Exalted Father. Great. Great. Exalted Father. How many children you got? What's the answer? None. Your name, wait, wait, I didn't hear. Exalted Father, yes. And how many children you got? None. Zero. After 86 years, he has a child, a son, by his servant girl. So now he's got one. So he comes to breakfast one day. And he tells Sarah, he said, God has changed my name. Oh, great. I was tired of this exalted father thing. I mean, that's so embarrassing. He said, well, you're not going to believe it. God changed my name. I'm no longer exalted father. Now, I'm a father of a multitude of nations. Right. (laughs) What? You get one child and it goes to your head? (laughs) I'm the father of a multitude of nations? What are you thinking about? So, Abram had to deal with that all of his life. But the scripture tells us over and over again that he walked by faith. He says, Sarah, that's what God said and I believe him. So he obeyed and he responded. He responds next to the requirement of God. Look at chapter 17, verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant. And you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This is where Abram said, what? Okay. Anyway, you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised, verse 11, in the flesh of your foreskin. 
And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house of you, of who, or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Verse 14, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So Abraham responds to the requirement of God. I'll never forget coming across the word circumcision as a young boy. I was reading my Bible in my room. I still got a mental picture of reading my Bible back in my room. And I saw the word. And so I came out into the living room where my mother was sitting on the couch. My grandmother, we called her granny, was sitting in her chair. She liked to dip snuff. She had her can there. And uh, this is Evergreen, Alabama. I remember it vividly, though. But I came out. I said, Mom, said, what is this word? And I pointed. She said, circumcision. I said, well, what does it mean? And my mother, in all her wisdom, looked at me and said, don't ever ask anybody but me. That's all I ever knew, okay? <laughs> so like a lot of other things, I had to learn on my own uh, about circumcision. Well, circumcision is a surgical procedure performed on most males within a few days, if not hours, of their birth. Their foreskin is removed and it is done most often today for health reasons. Circumcision. Now, Abraham was 99 years old. It was a different meaning for him. Let me give you just a brief overview of what circumcision is all about. First of all, it was not and it is not a means of grace whereby someone is saved or justified. It's not an act or a work that we can do that makes us right with God. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. We're not talking about salvation. Same thing with baptism. People today say, well, you know, you've got to be baptized to be saved. No, baptism, circumcision, these are acts of obedience before God. Faith is how we're justified. It's not a means of grace whereby someone's saved. Abraham was justified in 15, circumcised in 17, 24 years later if you're keeping score. But like the law that was given years later, it's not a means of being right with God, but a means of walking in obedience before God. God said, do this. Abraham said, what? But he did it, okay? All right, what does it mean? He puts off the old. Putting off the old. Circumcision is a sign of putting off the old. For Abraham, it was God's way of telling him that his promises were not going to be accomplished in the flesh, in his own power, but in the power of God. For us, it's a reminder of what God has done for us in Christ. Colossians 2.11 Colossians 2.11, Paul says, For in Him, in Christ, you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, like baptism, this is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. It's a picture, a physical way, of putting away the old, a cutting away, if you will, of our old nature. We've been circumcised in Christ. When we come to Christ, we're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Again, we say this about baptism. When we are baptized, we are buried with Christ. We are raised to walk in newness of life. So we're putting off the old nature and we're putting on the new. 
Also for Abraham, circumcision was a fact that he was a reminder of he was committed to the Lord. He was committed to the Lord at 99 years old. God said, do this, and he did it. He surrendered his will to God's will. It was an act of total surrender. Circumcision was done in the flesh, but the significance was for the heart. Do I have a heart that is totally surrendered to God? That's where Moses challenged the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. He says, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. In other words, surrender to God. Obey the Lord, regardless of the cost. Whatever God says, that's what you do. So it's a sign of a commitment to the Lord. Don't live in resistance to the Lord, but in submission to Him. For Abraham, it represented a total commitment to the Lord. For us, again, the circumcision of our heart, Colossians 1, 2 there, is a total commitment to Christ. Number three, it represents a total separation from the world. For Abraham and his people, it was a constant reminder that they belonged to the Lord. They were a different people. They were to live in obedience to the Lord and therefore live blameless before the Lord. And as they walked with God, remember Genesis 12, 3, they were to be a blessing to all the nations, but they weren't to be like all the other nations. They weren't to cave in to the pagan culture that they were living in, the Canaanites one day, when the nation of Israel returned. They're to be separate. And that's what the Scripture calls us as believers. Come out and be separate. We're to be different. Again, circumcision was a sign that these people belonged to God. Now the sign is that the Holy Spirit fills us. God dwells with us. We are the temple of the living God. And we are to be different. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So circumcision was a way of putting off the old, demonstrating surrender to the Lord, being separate from the world. But notice this also in verse 14. It was a sign of community. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. That's what God said. These are my people. These people belong to me. And so all the males were circumcised males. All the people in the fellowship of God have been born again. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They've been set apart because they belong to Christ. We're to be different from the world and we're to be united with each other. We're to find community among ourselves because of Christ and what He's done for us. So He joins a community. Again, that's the nature of the church today. We're a body of believers. We've all given our hearts to Christ. We're united together. The church is where we find community. We're a body of baptized believers. We've surrendered our hearts to Christ. Are we perfect? No. But we all belong to Jesus. We find Christian fellowship and encouragement as we come together, united by our faith in Christ. So Abraham responds to the requirement of God. Number three, Abraham receives the promise of God. Look at verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, princess, shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come before her. Verse 17, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? 
And will Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? You know, Sarah does the same thing in 1812, uh, verse 18, chapter 18, verse 12. Excuse me. In 1812, we took a little trip. Anyway, but in chapter 18, verse 12, Sarah does the same thing and she's rebuked. So as I looked at that, people think that Abraham fell and just said, man, (laughs) you just got good news. You know, I'm thrilled. He's laughing because laughter is an important part because what's their son's name? What's their son's name going to be? Isaac. What's it mean? Laughter. Abraham gets the news. He laughs with joy. Sarah gets the news. She laughs with scorn. But there's laughter. But here's the deal. God says, Sarai will no longer be Sarai. She's going to be Sarah. And you're going to have a child. Now see, Abraham thought he'd already worked this thing out. Yes, I'm going to have an offspring. Poor Sarah, she can't have it. So we'll just do it with Hagar. So it came from my loins, came from my body. So this is my son. God, can't you just do? Look at verse 18. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Again, God does not bargain with Abraham. How about Ishmael? God says, no. You know, God answers our prayers like that sometimes. No. We think we got it figured out. We think we know what we want to do. Can we do it this way? God says, no. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it in a miraculous way. God says, no, Ishmael is not the promised child. Now, God does bless, and he says he will bless Ishmael with 12 princes in Genesis 25, 16. They're named. 12 princes come from Ishmael, but he is not the promised child. God had another plan. We ask, why not Ishmael? Well, because Ishmael represented Abraham's best effort. Ishmael represented man's effort at accomplishing God's purposes. In church, it doesn't work that way. Ishmael represented Abraham's attempt to help God out. Have you ever tried that? You know, I I know this needs to be done, and I'll kind of help God out here. That's what Abraham wanted to do, to help God out. In Ishmael, Abraham could brag because he was able to produce a son. But by the time Isaac comes along, I think that's why you have 13 years of silence between chapter 16 and chapter 17. Some people said God was mad. Mad at Hagar, mad at Ishmael, mad at, mad at Abraham. No, I think God waited 13 years. There was no confrontations. There were no miraculous events. You look at that. Abraham goes from 86 to 99 in one chapter. 13 years. Why? Because God's delays are for God's glory. See, we had to wait until Abraham was 100. Do we have anybody here 100 years old? Sarah was 90. See, God had to wait until there was no earthly way for this to happen. God had to wait until there was no humanly, no, no way humanly possible for this child to be born. God's delays are for God's glory. Isaac would be a miracle baby. So this is where Sarai comes into the picture. God changes her name. We mentioned that. This is what Paul says about that. You don't have to, I don't think I put this up, but in Romans 4, Paul says, Abraham contemplated his own body. This is when he's 100 years old. Now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. 
giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So Abraham receives the promises of God. And just a couple things about this promise real quick. It's a promise based on God's power. Who is God? Verse 1, El Shaddai, God Almighty. God spoke the world into existence. God speaks and a child is born. Church, that's the God that we deal with. El Shaddai. It's a promise based on God's power. The promised child had to come from the power of the Lord. It was not possible from a human perspective for them to have children. God is able to deliver his promises because he is God Almighty. It's a promise based on God's grace. There was nothing about Abraham that distinguished him. He was a moon-worshiping pagan in Ur. God called him. He messed up. He lied. He continues to do things. There was nothing about Abraham that would make him a friend of God other than the fact that God loved him. It was an act of grace in his life. God called him, God justified him, God sanctified him, he set him apart here, and ultimately God glorified him by making him the father of many nations. Such is the grace of God. You think, well, I'm a nobody. What can God do with me? The eyes of the Lord go to and fro all across the earth looking for one person whose heart is whole toward him so that he can prove himself strong in that one person. One person. It was a promise based on God's grace. Abraham and his descendants, as we mentioned, they all had flaws. Yet God's promises are not based on our shaky performance, but on God's power. Let me ask you, is there anybody here that has any flaws? Is there a perfect person? I heard heard a preacher ask one time, is there a perfect man alive? And a guy in the back stood up and raised his hand. He said, are you perfect? He said, no, I'm not, but my wife's first husband was. But anyway, nobody's perfect. We all have flaws, okay? We all make mistakes. It's a promise based on God's grace. It's a promise based on God's glory. Y'all got to listen faster. God makes sure that we understand that he is the one. He is the one who brings it all about. That's why he waited 13 years. It's based on his glory. There's no broker deal here that God cuts with Abraham. God is the one who gets the glory. I will, I shall, I will, you will be. That's what God says to Abraham. Through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. Through Abraham, kings will come. Does that sound familiar? And ultimately, through Abraham, the king of kings will come. But what about all the dissension? What about all the fighting? What about all the disobedience? God accomplishes his purpose for his glory. God's name will be great among the nations. God's promise is available to us. The question when you read Genesis 17, any just a casual reader would say, well, how could Abraham, one man, become the father of many nations? Now, we think of the nation of Israel. We think of the Jewish people today. But many nations. Revelation tells us that every tribe, every tongue will be represented before the throne of God. That's the nature of the gospel. God's promise is available to us. Through Christ, we know God. We can be called a friend of God through Christ. It's a promise to us based on God's power. God was able to bring life from the dead womb of Sarah. He's able to bring life into our spiritually dead condition. 
It's a promise based on grace. By grace we are saved through faith. There's nothing about us that would cause us to deserve God's salvation. Yet God calls us friend. And to do that, He calls us. He justifies us. He sanctifies us. He sets us apart. And Paul said in Romans 8, ultimately He will glorify us. All by His grace. It's a promise based on God's glory. He calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. This little light of mine, that's what God's glory is all about. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. Christ has paid the price for our sin. He takes our sin. We receive His righteousness. That's the glory of the gospel. When we trust in Christ, the scripture says, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. That's how we become a child of God. That's how we become a friend of God. Scripture says we've been circumcised, not in the flesh only, but in our hearts. In our hearts that God has cut away the old, taken away the old by the Holy Spirit. We set aside the old, we put on the new. We now belong to the Lord. And so we know God through a relationship with Christ. Through Christ we find community. Community, we're now a body of Christ. Just like 1714 there, the, uh, the verse. <laughs> Again, that if you weren't a part of, this, of the circumcised men, you, were, you weren't a part of the family. Now, as we are in Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Black, white, yellow, tall, short, it doesn't matter. We've all been born again by the Spirit of God. We find community. His Spirit dwells in us. And because His Spirit dwells in us, we're united together, but separated from the world. We're different. We're different. We're a community of baptized believers who've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And through Christ, we live on mission. Don't ever forget why God spoke to Abraham. Genesis 12, 3. Through you, all nations shall be blessed. God's initial design, His plan was to, through His people, bless the whole world, all nations. And that's why we live on mission with Christ. That's God's purpose of choosing Abraham. He would become the father of a people who would make God's name great. He would be the father of many nations. Kings would come from him. The king of kings would come from him. Many people who would come to know the father through Christ, through the son. That's the message of the gospel. That's why we're here. That's why we send missionaries around the world. Abraham, the father of a multitude of nations. Abraham, a friend of God. Church, we can know God today. He has revealed Himself to us through Jesus. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will not turn them away. Whoever comes to me, I will not turn them away. He who has the Son of God has eternal life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. How can I know the God of the universe? How can I be known as a friend of God? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Christ who died for you. He takes your sin and gives you His righteousness. And we become a friend of God. Father, thank you for the gospel.